Well, hello and welcome again to our Facebook Live interview series. My name is Guy Stevens. You know, it's hard to believe we've been doing these for almost a year now. Uh, every two weeks, we've been doing some kind of special program. Uh, we've been doing interviews and presentations and lots of great things. Uh, so really excited to have you here with us today. Uh, if you're not familiar with who I am, I am the executive founder and director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I started the Alliance uh, a little over two years ago to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Our mission is to educate the public and bring people together that are really interested in changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that we can reduce the use of restraint and seclusion really not only in schools, but anywhere they're happening uh, across the nation and beyond. Uh, ultimately, in terms of school, we want to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. So really excited to have another program for you today. Uh, we are share, uh, joined here today by Karen Bletcher, who is joining us as a uh, educator for a special interview. We're going to be taking your questions today during the interview. So if you have questions, feel free to put those in the chat. Also, today's event is being recorded. Uh, we will have this available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. So if you can't listen to the whole thing right now, you'll be able to go back and watch it again later. So before we introduce our special guest, I want to introduce you to my co-host today. So we have as our co-host, Beth Tolley. And Beth, of course, is the Director of Educational Strategy for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. She retired, um, well, gee, 20, 2018, it was almost three years ago, three years ago, time flies, uh, from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for early intervention for infants and toddlers. And since retiring, Beth has found a whole nother uh, set of things to uh, keep busy would not be quite the right word, <laughs> exceedingly busy with, uh, including all the things that she does here at the Alliance. Uh, of course, she has experience as a parent and grandparent of children that have had behavioral challenges, which has really fueled her passion to improve the lives of children and families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. So, Beth, welcome as always. Thank you very much. And I um, want to introduce Karen now. So we're really excited to have Karen here. So Karen is a Long Island-based writer, artist, teacher, and mom to three amazing neurodivergent kids. And she currently teaches secular studies to a small class of third and fourth grade students at the Chabad Heder in Quorum. I probably butchered that, even though you told me how to say it. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> say the right way. Chabad Heder. Okay, thank you, or <laughs> New York. So um, she has a constantly evolving classroom that's informed by her own experiences with her own kids, as well as her years of work as an, a children's entertainer and the voices of autistic adults and advocates. So I think some of you probably are familiar with Karen because of um, a post we did um, or back in the fall of 2020, when she uh, rose to the attention of, uh, which one of those morning shows was it? Good Morning America. Good Morning America. Because of um, a Facebook post you wrote about um, working with, um, really using kind of universal design for every kid, not just uh, neurodivergent uh, kids, but uh, typical kids also, how adapting uh, works so well for everyone. So we're really excited to dig a little more into that today. 
Well, Karen, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting to you know, have a chance to talk to you and share some of the things that you've been doing. Uh, of course, as Beth mentioned, we became aware of, of you through that uh, what became a viral social media post about, you know, it's really interesting because I was reading it again the other day and uh, reading your, your longer article, which was you were kind of surprised that some of the things you were saying seemed to be surprising to others. Um, but but really that that post talks about, you know, the the way that you work with kids in your classroom and what you've learned from your your own children in the process. Um, but I know from talking to you that you have kind of a career that started off uh, some time ago. And why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, you know, how long you've been teaching and why you became a teacher. And then we'll dive into kind of the amazing things that you're doing and the approach that you have. Oh, sure. Well, how long I've been teaching sounds like a really simple question, but actually it's not because there's a lot of math. <laughs> um, because I, you know, I went to school to be a teacher. I got my master's degree in education about 20 years ago, but I have not been teaching for 20 years. Um, immediately out of school, I taught for three years, but not in any one place. I was doing, you know, um, leave replacements and part-time teaching and private tutoring and test prep and religious school and a little bit of little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, and then I was laid off when I was um, pregnant with my second child and just didn't go back. I stayed home and I became a stay-at-home mom and I pursued other things. I started my face painting business. And then last year, um, I was offered the opportunity to teach at the theater and I came back into it after you know, 12 years out of the game. And so this is now my second year back as a teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. And, and, you know, in your, in your viral post, you know, you, you, and that was of course shared by Good Morning America, you kind of talked about your approach to teaching. You talked about what you had learned kind of in the years in between when you started teaching and then when you went back to teaching and, and how you applied that to your classroom. And I, I think that well, let me let you talk about that and, and talk about, you know, kind of what you learned and, and how you applied that to the kids that you were working with. What I learned um, was that a lot of what I had been taught and a lot of what everyone was doing 20 years ago when I became a teacher didn't work for my kids. Mm. Um, you know, behavior mod never worked for my kids. And that was like, that was the gold standard was the sticker charts and the token boards and the clip charts. And like, that works for everybody. If it doesn't work, you're not doing it right. <laughs> it didn't. And I really, I, I had to think outside the box and I had to involve my own kids when my kids, you know, each of them at any given time has had a crisis or another, and they had to be active participants. And we had to listen to them when they explained to us what they were experiencing and what they were struggling with and not focus on the behaviors, but focus on what the behavior was an expression of because behavior is communication. It's an authentic expression of experience. And it's not always a means to an end. You know, you drop a bowling ball on your foot, you're going to scream. You're not screaming to make the bowling ball go away. <laughs> you know, you're not screaming to get attention. You're screaming because it hurts and you need to express that. You know, so behavior is, is often that. It's, it's just, it's how the experience comes out. And understanding the experience and getting to the root of the experience is how I was able to help my children. And um, that's really what's informed my teaching is recognizing that behavior isn't the problem and behavior was never the problem. And when you focus all of your energies on training behaviors, often you're training people to do things that are against their best interests. You know, like when you, yes. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were taking a breath. I was going to say, can you say that again? Behavior isn't the problem. It was never the problem. I, I think that's beautiful. Well, thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt. I thought you were at a pause. So you were saying when you're training people to address the behaviors, you're training them against their best interests because not everybody functions best when behaving outwardly the same way. <laughs> you know, and and learning and attention look different in different learners and in different individuals, regardless of neurotype. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You brought up a really interesting point, and we talk a lot about this, both both internally and with others, but that is about kind of this idea that everything that happens in terms of behavior is treated with the idea that there's intent behind it. The, the idea is that a kid is intentionally making choices, and as a result of that, if we want them to change their behavior, we have to either offer them incentives or we have to offer them consequences, which of course, both of those are, are really um, you know cut from the same cloth in terms of what you're trying to do. You're trying to give them something to get them to do something, but not really helping them to develop the skills or the capacity. So what we often find is that you know these these you know sticker charts and 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 clip charts and all of that, um, they don't work for the kids that need it the most. You know, the, the kids that might not need that might be okay with those kinds of things. But, you know, you, you kind of hit on that, you know, that it wasn't working for your kids. So in your teaching experience, these were things that you learned about. How did, how did you reach that point where you realize, you know what, even though the, this is what we're, we're, we're told we should be doing, it doesn't work. How did you come to that realization that some of those things just simply weren't working? Honestly, I, I didn't come to it on my own. I, I came to it um, by being out there, right? You know, being a teacher who was coming back into the game after so many years, I was out there Googling. You know, I was Googling clip charts because I wanted to make a cute one. And what I found were 10,000 resources about why clip charts are awful <laughs> and how on alternatives to clip charts and what you could do instead. I mean, it, it, it's all out there. I didn't invent any of these ideas and I didn't necessarily come to them on my own. I just kind of found them and said, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that makes sense. And at the same time, I had just recently, around the time of my post and around the time that I was setting up my classroom this year, I had just um, been uh, added to a Facebook group called Autism Inclusivity, which it was the first autistic led group um, that I've ever experienced. And in that group, you know, adult autistics give their um, perspective and their expertise to parents and teachers and caregivers um, of autistic children. And between everything that I kept hearing in that group and that I was learning in that group, and then all of these things I was learning from outside, you know, in teacher blogs and in, in you know, the, the new pedagogy that has come out since I started teaching 20 years ago, it all kind of came together in this beautiful confluence of, wow, you know, everything these people are saying would work really well for autistic people. And everything that autistic people are saying doesn't work for them, doesn't work for anybody. And how has nobody made this connection? <laughs> you know, what, what's good for this group of people would be better for everyone. Right, right. Good. I want to... Uh, hi, clap, jump up and down and <laughs> cheer for that. Um, go ahead, go ahead, guys. Well, I, I was going to say something along the same vein, which is, isn't it amazing when, when you know, we want to know how to, to better support autistic kids, 
when we actually listen to autistic adults and and how much we can learn from that. Uh, too often, you know, we we aren't listening to the right voices, and and as a result, there are a lot of approaches and, and even formalized programs out there that are not only not helpful but are, are often harmful. So it's a really important journey to make. But you know, you, you mentioned kind of the research that you did. But it's amazing that I guarantee you there are classrooms across the nation that still have their clip charts and still have a lot of these things that yeah. even though, I mean, you know, the, you know, there was an article, ditch the clip, uh, you know, several, uh, you know, I think many probably have moved in that direction, but a lot of these things are really still happening. A lot of it's really based on, you know, thinking that all behavior is a matter of choice and that, that, you know, kids are only going to be responsive to, you know, rewards and, and consequences. So it's really interesting that, that you, not only did the research, but you, you look to do the research in the right areas. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a, a huge, uh, you know, a, a huge thing in, in terms of making a difference. Yeah, kudos to you. And I have a question about um, how you, uh, within your, your school, I'm not familiar with um, what kind of, I don't think this is probably a public school. It is not. Okay. Um, okay, a hater. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Chabad. Chabad is is um, the Lubavitcher Jews, you know, black hat Orthodox religious Jews. Um, and the Chabad is, is community outreach. It's about reaching out to the entire Jewish population. They're the ones who kind of make themselves available to anybody who wants um, to feel connected to the Jewish community. So that's, that's what Chabad is. And the Chabad hater is where those families send their children. So it's a very, very, very small Orthodox Jewish population. It's a very small, close-knit population. I have, in my class this year, five students. Two of them are cousins. Two of them are distant cousins. <laughs> we have, I think, our total enrollment is like 20, and that's only five or six families. It's, it's very, very small. Which is another one of the other benefits of um, is small classrooms where you can really individualize. So it sounds like you're in a, you were in a, a good place to be able to to do these things, because my question was going to be, uh, a lot of people have trouble trying to implement as they, if they went out and Googled and they got good info, and then they're trying to layer it in a system that is entrenched in, in rewards and consequences, and it's very hard. So um, I'm glad that worked with you, and I think we can all learn from how you were able to, to do these things, and what specific things you might maybe give us some examples of, of what you did instead of um, how you got to know your kids and how you got to be able to individualize and do support them in ways that were effective rather than trying to manipulate their behaviors. Uh, well, the very first thing I did, because where this all started was me researching clip charts. And when you Google clip chart, immediately you come up with 10 articles about ditching clip charts. Um, that led me to the concept of a calm corner which is kind of where my whole classroom redesign started was when I said, oh, what a wonderful idea. So the very first thing I changed was that I introduced a calm corner in my classroom. Um, and my classroom is tiny. So my calm corner, I bought one of those little hanging canopies, you know, from Target that's like this big. <laughs> that's literally a corner just with a pillow in it and a stuffed animal and a basket of sensory toys. Um, so I started by introducing that and to, and explaining to my students what it was for. You know, a calm corner is not a timeout corner. It's not a punishment. Um, and it's not something that I regulate. The calm corner is there and it's available for them um, to go into any time they need to for really any reason. They don't need to give me a reason. They can just quietly get up and go to the calm corner. There's a timer in there. 
Um, they know they're not allowed to stay more than, I think it's three minutes, we set the limit. Um, and the only situation in which you can't go to the calm corner is if there's somebody else in there. You can go into it three minutes, you come back, you quietly rejoin the group, you know, no explanations needed. And I can also send a child to the calm corner if I can see them getting overwhelmed or they seem to be upset or I'll offer them the option, you know, do you want to maybe go take a break in the calm corner? You don't have to stay here. Um, and what the calm corner is, it's just, it's a safe um, and isolated space where you can be alone when you can't be alone. Like when you're in a place that you can't escape and, and you're in a, a situation that you have to be into, that's, it's sort of the little sanctuary within that classroom. So for any reason, if you're upset, if you're overwhelmed, if you had a fight at recess and you came in and you're still kind of shaking about it, you know, any of those, you can go over and you can sit in the calm corner and you can kind of, you can regulate in there. And all of the things that are in the calm corner that help with self-regulation self are things that I had already introduced to them um, prior to that. The previous year, I, I used to, um, during uh, the early stages of the pandemic, when we went virtual, I started doing Mindful Fridays, mostly for lack of online curriculum. <laughs> it's like, I need something to fill my Fridays. And I said, let's, this is a great time to practice mindfulness because boy, are we all stressed out. <laughs> so um, I have uh, cards in my calm corner with mindfulness exercises that they're already familiar with because we did them together last year. Mm. Um, you know, with, uh, uh, I have an emotion wheel it's a, and a mirror so you can check in with yourself and see how you're feeling and pick out your little, you know, your, your facial expression on the emotion wheel. <laughs> All things that I had introduced that the foundation was already there for are in the calm corner for them to use. And some of the students choose to use those materials. Others just like to go to the calm corner and just sit. Um, but they do use it. They don't all use it, but if even one child needs it, it's good for it to be there. And everybody has the option. So I started with that. <laughs> so, you know, I recall, in fact, I just pulled it up because I, I was looking for the words that you use, because one of the mm -hmm. things that struck me was thinking about the philosophy that you have. So, you know, there's a lot of practices that you put in place, like the calm corner. And I want to hear about voices and choices later. Yes. That, that's really important. <laughs> but, but aside from that, you have this over overarching philosophy. And, and what you said in this article was when we treat autistic children the way the world tells us to treat neurotypical children, they suffer. And then you went on to say uh, essentially that you've never encountered a single human being of any age or neurotype who doesn't thrive when being treated like an autistic person. I mean, of course, the way an autistic person ought to be treated with mm -hmm. open communication, adaptive expectations, and respect for self-advocacy and self-regulation. So you, you set this bar for what you want to do in terms of your guiding philosophy. Uh, and it seems like that's really shaped your classroom. Can you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, somebody in response to that original post, I wish I could take credit for these words, um, but somebody had expressed that the problem is that children, regardless of neurotype, are rarely treated as people. Right. And that really resonated with me because that, that's exactly what I meant when I said everybody thrives when you treat them the way autistic people need to be treated. The way, the reason that autistic people need to be treated in this specific way is because there's so much variation in, you know, they're, autistic people are not a monolith. <laughs> you know, they all have different sensory needs and different ways of regulating their emotions and different ways of processing sensory input and different ways of communicating. Um, is, there's just perhaps a little bit more variation among autistic people than there is among neurotypical people, which is why when you are interacting with an autistic person, you need to learn never to take anything for granted. 
You can't take for granted that the way this feels to me is the way it feels to you or what makes me feel better would make you feel better or the way I can, I process this is the way you process this. You have to ask the person everything because they are the experts in themselves. But the truth is that all people are the experts in themselves and nobody suffers for being asked as mm -hmm. opposed to for having their needs assumed or dictated to them. So mm -hmm. that's really the, the driving philosophy is what if we just did that for everybody? <laughs> Treated everybody like a person, right? And instead of yeah. you know, so often the, 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 the ideology is that we, we look at children as, as things often to control. It, it's not, it's not a matter of listening to voices. I mean, I love approaches that are collaborative that, that work with kids and, and try to solve problems too often. The approaches are, are doing things to kids rather than working with kids. Um, so, I mean, your, your approach is really, I think, tightly tied to that. And I really want to hear, I know Beth has a question, but how that gets into getting into your voices and choices idea. Um, but, but let's see if Beth has a question here first. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that um, we, I think assumption is if we could learn how to not assume anything, uh, we could be a whole lot better. And if we could learn how to listen, and that's what I'm hearing you say, is you listen to the kids to get the idea of what they need, how they're feeling, how they're interpreting things instead of assuming. Um, and I love what you say about all kids benefit from this approach. I, I think some of our some of the things we've done as a country has been to standardize and measure and all that. And I think we're seeing the effects of when you try to do too much standardization, you lose your ability to think individually. Uh, about kids. So thank you for bringing that up and for pointing that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we need to normalize having conversations about all of the things that we expect to be standardized and that we take for granted. Right. Um, and that's, you know, when I talk about choices and voices, um, it's not just training the adults and training the teachers. You also have to teach children because this is not a, a way of communicating about yourself that is normalized. You know, our culture very much says that you know, you, you need to deserve accommodations. You need to somehow prove that that you're worthy of accommodations. You know, you everyone is expected to, you know, meet the same expectations. And if you can't, you better have a darn good reason to be mm -hmm. asking for help. And if you don't have a good reason, if you don't have, you have to disclose a diagnosis to ask for help um, or to ask to do something a different way. And that's ridiculous because, <laughs> You know, if we normalize communicating needs for all people, you would see that there is so much more variety in people's needs than we take for granted because we're so used to dictating people's needs to them. Mm -hmm. um, so part, a big part of what I do is I'm also, I'm training the kids and I'm teaching the kids and I'm giving them a vocabulary for advocating for themselves for assessing their own needs and learning to understand their own needs and how they learn best and giving them opportunities to kind of experiment. You know, you, you everybody's allowed to have a sensory toy on their desks. Not everybody does well with a sensory toy on their desks. You know, for some of you having that sensory toy on your desk is really distracting and you do way better without it. Um, but I give them an opportunity to try everything and to really reflect on what works and what doesn't work and what they like and what they don't like and how they work best. You know, I, I give them more opportunities for self-directed work. That's where the choices piece comes in. And I'll talk more about um, what that really looks like and the nuts and bolts of it. Um, but I'm also constantly 
touching base with them and encouraging them to self-assess and say, tell me what works and what didn't, or, or figure out for yourself what works and what didn't. And to be able to ask or to have alternatives when you're struggling. Um, I actually had in advance of my um, parent-teacher conferences this year, I had student-teacher conferences where I sat each student down um, and I asked them, I said, okay, if I had your parent in here today and I told them so-and-so is doing great, what does that mean? You know, what does doing great mean? What, what, what is the goal that you think being a good student means? What are you shooting for? And then we talked about what do you, do you think you're hitting that goal? What do you think you're struggling with to hit that goal? And we identified that. Um, and they all identified things. You know, they all said, mm, I, I know I need to do this more, or I really feel like I'm doing this too much. And then we talked about, well, when you're in that moment, when you're on this assignment and you're feeling stuck, or when you're in class and you feel the need, you know, you feel like you're having trouble focusing and you want to make jokes and you want to, you know, you want to disrupt your classmates. What do you actually need in that moment? And what can I do to support you in that moment to help you get it? And what are your options? What can you do to support that need? And we came up with them. Well, I can take a break and I can go for a walk down the hall. I can go to the calm corner. I can take a fidget out of my desk. Um, you know, and they, they, that's the choices, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so making sure that they're aware of all of the different options available to them. Um, I also, this is coming into the, the, um, nuts and bolts as promised is I restructured a lot of my classroom time. So I'm doing significantly less whole group instruction. I still do whole group instruction. Um, although the expectations during whole group instruction are very different. I don't require eye contact. I don't require whole body listening. I don't require them to keep their shoes on. I have kids taking their shoes off and putting their feet up on their desk during whole class instruction. Um, you know, whatever they need to feel comfortable to be focused is fine as long as it's not disrupting others. And that's always, you know, a dance. And I only have five students. It's even it's much more of a dance if you're doing this in a class full of 20 students. But we talk about um, respecting each other's boundaries and articulating our boundaries. Like um, I have misophonia and my students all know that I have misophonia. And Could you say what that is? Misophonia, yes. Um, misophonia is a specific sensory sensitivity. Uh, it's an extreme sensitivity to specific sounds. Um, for a lot of misophonics, myself included, the sound of chewing or lip smacking is a big one. Um, you know, if if noisy chewers annoy you, you know, you're human. If noisy chewers <laughs> send you into a homicidal rage, you might be misophonic. Like if you've ever needed to leave a restaurant or decline an invitation or not been able to stay at the table with your family while they're eating dinner because the sounds trigger you so much that you can't regulate your emotions, that's misophonia. Okay. So no problem. My students know that I'm misophonic. They know my trigger noises. And I'm allowed to say to them, Listen, I know you said you could have, I said you could have that lollipop, but I can't handle it right now. Can I give you a bowl and you could finish it later? You know, or um, I actually have foam earplugs. I have like a jug of foam earplugs on my desk that not only I, but all of my students are allowed to use anytime they need to if they're feeling overwhelmed by the noises that other people are making. Um, and you know, they're the, they're the foam earplugs from CVS. They're like 32 decibels. So you can still hear, you just, everything's a little muffled. It makes everything a little bit more um, bearable, but I model um, articulating my own needs and my own boundaries and explaining, I know this isn't the way it is for you, but this is the way it is for me. And this is what I need in order to accommodate that. And I encourage them to do the same. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that, that really, um, I mean, you know, there's something very powerful about that because, you know, uh, not not only, I mean, through modeling that, um, you know, you're also sending a very positive message that, that it's okay that people have different needs and different accommodations. And, and, and you know, um, so often I think um, it's not that positive. I mean, you know, people have accommodations is looked at something sometimes in a negative light rather than, hey, we're all different. We all have different needs. And, and it sounds like the climate you're creating really is, is making the kids more aware of that, you know, uh, as well. Exactly. I'm trying to create an environment where it's okay to say, this is how I experience this. And this is something I need without having to give it a name or without having to have a piece of paper saying you have a diagnosis or without it being special treatment, because everybody is equally entitled to that treatment. You know, it, it's, there's no prizes for doing things the hard way. <laughs> you have just articulated my, um, dream for overhaul of the of IDEA is that we everybody is individualized and mm. everybody receives what they need without having to prove they're disabled. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, which is such a backwards thing because you prove you're disabled and then we're supposed to treat positively. Um, so I love what you're doing. I love how you're living it, how you're, you're um, showing it for your students, for them to I just came off a um, an hour session with Mona Delahook uh, as part of her online course. And she was so big about talking about how so much is done top-down teaching, but really kids get more from the modeling and from the being, how you're being, how you are with them. And you're such a, what you're doing is such a perfect example of that, so, which makes me think, um, makes me want to ask the question, how do your fellow teachers respond to how your, your class operates and how you're doing your work? I'm honestly, I'm in a kind of unique situation because I'm in such a tiny school. Um, you know, in my own workplace, I only have two fellow teachers. Um, <laughs> And we're all very much teaching in a bubble because, you know, there are only three groups and we're all we're all kind of doing our own thing and not entirely aware of what the others are doing, except when we all come together. Um, in terms of, you know, what I've shared with about my pedagogy and about my classroom online, boy, am I getting a lot of feedback from fellow teachers on that. But it has all been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and it's it's been, you know, well, this makes a lot of sense and I can see why your students are thriving and thank you for, for putting this into words. But most of the people who are responding to my post and to my blog um, are people who were doing this already. Mm -hmm. I'm not really getting to see the other side of it, the people who, who are more entrenched in the old way of doing things. I haven't, um, I haven't gotten that pushback yet, which is not to say that that pushback doesn't exist. I'm just, you know, I'm blessed to kind of be in this little echo chamber where I don't have to experience that pushback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and certainly that's, I think, one of the goals probably that, that Beth and I have are, are, are sharing these better ways of, of, of working with kids, uh, you know, away from some of the traditional approaches that seem to be really doing more harm than good that, you know, that are leading to kids that are being restrained or secluded or, you know, you know, expelled or suspended, you know, when, when we are in this prime, you know, kind of mindset of doing things to kids, the consequences often really have a traumatic impact. Um, one of the things you mentioned, I was looking through your longer article last night, mm -hmm. uh, or the night before, and you mentioned that you adapt your classroom environment based on what your students tell you, both with their words and their behaviors. So tell me about that a little bit. 
what have students told you that it ha have caused you to make changes in the classroom or what what have you seen through behaviors that have led you to believe that you need to make changes H how does that work for you um well i mean they are not shy about telling me when they don't like something mm. <laughs> you know um you know, they will tell me things like if I say we're doing a writer's workshop today, two of them will say, yeah, yeah I love writer's workshop. And three of them will say, oh, I hate doing writer's workshop. It's so boring. It's such hard work. It makes my hand hurt. And they will be specific. It makes my hand hurt. I just I don't like I don't like drawing. I really prefer to work with clay or it's like that they're really specific. So they do tell me what they like and what they don't like. And if the thing that they don't like isn't something that isn't the thing being taught, like, you know, I can't help you if you don't like multiplication if I'm teaching multiplication. But, um, but if you don't like illustrating your story in writer's workshop, I'm not teaching you how to illustrate a story. I'm teaching you how to express yourself in writing. You can do something else. You know, or if, if you don't like, if your hand gets fatigued when you write, I'm not teaching you handwriting right now. I'm teaching you how to form a paragraph. You can do it on a keyboard, you know, or you can dictate it to me, or we can do it another way. You know, so they, they do, um, they articulate what they don't like and they articulate very specifically, Mrs. Glacier, can we do more of this? Mrs. Glacier, can we do less of that? You know, if I say, take out your textbooks, it's a collective groan because reading out of the textbook is a really boring way to learn and we all know it. Um, you know, so they explicitly express to me what's working and what isn't. And I will touch base with them when I try something new. Like, you know, that activity that we did last week, did you like that? Do you want to do more of that? Do you want to try going back to the way we did it before? And they will heartily tell me in great detail. But then also, you know, as I said, behavior is communication, mm -hmm. you know, um, and all of the behaviors uh, that we identify as teachers as problem behaviors and as disruptive behaviors are generally not a means to the to an end for the student. They're not attention seeking um, and they're not necessarily um, avoiding either. They're not necessarily looking to escape the situation or to change the situation. Sometimes they're just this is how I feel and this is how I express it. Like when you're bored, you crack jokes. <laughs> Or, or fidget or, you know, whatever you do. When you are upset, you might not be doing your work. You might be, you know, fidgeting or looking off into the distance or doing something else. So I'm constantly watching for those behaviors too. And if I have, I mean, like I said, I only have five students. If all five of my students are off task or they're interrupting or they're taking the conversation off in another direction or they're cracking jokes or they're setting each other up, something I'm doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> their behavior there is not the problem i am that's just a that's a bad review <laughs> <laughs> and i can i can make my lesson more engaging yeah yeah well you, you know, that's a great point because i think that um you know often in, in educational situations the the um prevailing wisdom is that the kid needs a change mm -hmm. uh you know the kid needs a change to fit the environment not the environment changing to fit the kid and and, and people are sometimes uh, resistant to change change is hard um but you you seem to take changes i mean it almost feels like a a living classroom where you're you know kind of learning as you go and 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 ready to probably adapt to a new group of kids that's going to provide different challenges so in that vein i mean ha have you tried things that well let's talk about both have you tried things that have been really successful that surprised you or have you tried things that you thought well gee that didn't work out the way i thought and then stopped i mean because it sounds like you're always um you know kind of you're iterative, you're, you're, you're doing things and you're evolving. So how, how's that worked for you? 
Um, I am constantly evolving and I have certainly tried things that have worked and that haven't. Um, something that I tried that has been incredibly successful, um, that I, I was surprised that it was as successful as it was, was I completely unstructured a lot of our time. Um, I, I, I mentioned earlier that I don't do as much whole group instruction anymore. I have basically two like chunks of instructional time in the day. Usually I will devote one of those um, to whole group instruction and the other to independent work, or I'll split them each in half and do a little bit of instruction and independent work, a little bit of instruction, independent work. But then the independent work is completely unstructured. Um, they have choices of what they can work on and they don't have to do everything. For example, um, just a, a typical kind of lesson plan in my classroom is I might do a lesson on James and the Giant Peach, okay? And I will assign uh, an assessment of what we just learned for James and the Giant Peach. During independent work time, they have that assessment that they can do. They also have um, their multiplication sprints that they so because they're working on their um, times table facts. They have um, their spelling practice for the week. They have their handwriting practice. They have a review of what we did in social studies yesterday. Um, they have a review of what we did in math today. They have, and there are like two or three practice activities for each of those, for each of the skills that we're learning. Also the skills that we had learned that we're working on throughout the year. There's like, everything is available to them and they can choose how to use their time um, during that unstructured work time. And I, they're just, I, I will give guidelines. Like you have to complete at least one of these three assignments before you move on to a repeatable assignment like times table practice. Um, or sustained silent reading, uh, or you have to complete at least three assignments today before you can take free time. Uh, but then that's it. And then they can, they kind of do what they want. And I will circulate because some students do very, very well self-directed and are very motivated to be self-directed. Others, um, you know, if given the opportunity to fade into the background, they will happily fade into the background and they will spend, you know, half an hour doodling in the corner of their notebook, looking studious and not doing anything, <laughs> you know, so I can kind of walk up to that student and say, okay, tell me what we're working on right now. Which assignment did you choose? What are we going to do? And I can sit and work one-on-one -on -one while the other students who can self-direct are self-directing. Um, and I also, um, we were talking about things that work. That worked great. I was really surprised that the kids, I, I assumed that they would always go for the thing that was easiest for them and that they would avoid the things that they struggled with. Uh, and initially, that is exactly what happened. You know, everybody would go straight to their favorite activity and they would do that every day and they wouldn't do the things that they hate. But because all of those things, I, I wasn't changing out the available activities over the course of the week. I would like add one every day, but then everything else is still there. So by the end of the week, in order to finish your two assignment minimum, you're going to have to do one of the ones you haven't done yet. You're going to have to do something that you don't want to do. Um, so they started actually thinking and strategizing and say, rather than saving that for last and then not knowing what kind of state I'm going to be in when I come at it, I'm going to work on the things that I enjoy when I, when, you know, I'm feeling stressed and when I want to kind of autopilot and I'm going to come at the things that are harder for me when I'm feeling fresh and I'm feeling confident and I'm feeling motivated, or I'm going to do the things that are easier for me when Mrs. Glacier is helping another student. And I'm going to wait to tackle the things that are harder for me until I see that she's available to help me. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, we've gotten a couple questions. You're uh, third and fourth grade, right? Yes. 
for great students. And what you're talking about with the choices, I'm sitting here thinking myself, one of my one of my challenges for me at all through my life and including now is when I have too many choices, I get paralyzed. Yes. I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. um, and so it occurs to me that the, what you have described is you've given them practice so that those kids who do get paralyzed, you're there to help them. And you're also letting them um, have this learning experience where they, they're not going to, when they're you know 15 or 20, have to be directing their own work, having never before been in that position. They're getting a lot of it's really executive functioning skills that they're learning with you there, ready mm -hmm. to support them. So it really sounds lovely. Right. I also, I don't require anybody, you know, to self-direct. Like I said, if, there's a ch if there is a student who's paralyzed by choice and says, Mrs. Blacher, just pick for me, I will. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't need you to learn how to make that decision. You can learn that it's okay to ask. It's mm -hmm. okay to ask for help if you're not, I I'm really bad at deciding, I'm really anxious. And okay, here, do this. <laughs> if you want me to give you a list of things to do or you want to make a checklist of things to do, let's do that if that's how you work best. But you don't have to. And you also, you don't have to finish something before you move on to the next thing. And that's huge too. That's huge for me. You know, I have ADHD. Um, and I would often, you know, as an adult, as a child, I would get stuck. I can spend a whole day doing nothing because I have it in my head that there's this one report that I have to do and that has to get done. So I'm not going to let myself do anything else until I finish that report. But I can't do that report. And then the day is gone and I have done Nothing. And what I learned for myself is that there is that time is going to pass either way. It can pass with you, you know, banging your head into that wall, or it can pass with you getting other things done. <laughs> you know, eventually you're going to be able to come back to that task and you're going to be able to start it. So giving my students an environment where they always have that option and are encouraged to take that option. You know, if I'm doing this and I get to problem three and I'm stuck, I can stop and do handwriting practice. <laughs> I can stop and quiz myself on the times tables a couple of times, and then I'll come back to this when my brain is, is rested, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's, that option is always there. They have a classwork folder. So anything that's not finished, they just pop it in there. They can take it out the next time we have independent work. So I want to hit, hit a couple questions here. Um, and of course, I know that you were um, prior to, uh, you know, taking off time and, and, and uh, you know, then coming back to teaching. Uh, what, what grades did you teach at that point? Oh, goodness. I was all over the place. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and how, how long did you teach prior to? Um, um, three years, probably three years on and off. Um, my training is in. Uh, my, my certification is seven to 12. I, I, you know, my, I trained to be an English teacher. I'm teaching high school English was my dream. I wanted to teach Shakespeare. You know, that's <laughs> not what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I student taught at those grade levels in middle school and high school. Um, when I came out of that, I was teaching. I actually taught to adults. I did test prep. So I did SAT, GRE, MCAT, test prep mm -hmm. for Kaplan. Um, I was teaching third and fourth grade Hebrew school. I was teaching um, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in a school very similar to the school I'm teaching in now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I've really, I've been all over the map in terms okay. of what age groups I've worked with. And, and did you have any experience in the public school setting as well? I did um, okay. as a leave replacement. 
So I had a very small amount of uh, experience in the public school setting. Okay. And I'm seeing the question about how. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. I mean, and that question for Kath was kind of thinking about how, how what you're doing might fit into that public school setting. And I'm sure that after publishing your article, you got a lot of questions and comments from people probably in public schools. So what, what would your advice be to somebody that wanted to scale something like this to a, a different setting? Well, a lot of it actually does automatically scale to the setting. And a lot of it, remember, I didn't invent these ideas. A lot of it is already being done to great effect in a public school setting. It is a ridiculous amount of work and it's a very different kind of prep um, because you do, you're prepping significantly more tasks and activities for the kids to do because in order to offer choices, you have to design choices. And you really do need to be thinking outside the box in terms of differentiating your instruction, which we were all already doing. You know, differentiated instruction, that was the buzzword when I became a teacher 20 years ago. I know we know how to differentiate instruction. Um, but you have to do everything more. It is um, significantly more prep for things that the kids can work on individually and less prep for the whole group instruction. Mm -hmm. uh, a calm corner, that is, again, that's something that has been uh, being implemented in public school classrooms, in uh, mainstream settings, although it's most popular in special education classrooms and inclusion settings, but it's also starting to be adopted by teachers in mainstream settings. That's really, if you can have, if you can have a clip chart, you can have a calm corner. It's just a different way of doing things, but it's not more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to bring another kind of related question. Um, somebody asked if you're you're open to going to public schools to speak on this. So, uh, you know, you keep making clear, well, I didn't invent this, but but what you've done is you brought things together. And, and and sometimes it's not the the people that invent things, but it's the people that synthesize them and bring them together that can really make a difference. And and you have a very very dynamic way of of sharing your experience. So, do do you do any of that? Do you do any um, you know training or or speak at schools? I don't, um, simply because I haven't been asked to, but yes, I would absolutely be open to. And by the way, hi, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Megan is the one, just to, to give you a little bit of background here, Megan is the one who added me to autism inclusivity, which is where I made the original post that wound up going viral. So... <laughs> So Meg, Megan sounds like she has a good suggestion for you to uh, you know, start, start doing some, uh, you know, training or, or workshops or something like that. Oh, that's great. All right. So I'm just looking for questions here. Uh, Beth, I'll let you ask another while I'm seeing what we, else we have here in the chat. Yeah, I, I was looking. Um, first of all, let me just tell uh, Brooke and anyone else, this is going to be posted on Facebook and on YouTube. So don't worry that you missed the beginning. I just um, thought of that one. Yeah, sorry. And, yeah. and I also found a question or a statement while you were uh, doing that. And, and this person, Kath, uh, talks about uh, that one of their teachers had a calm corner, but it turned yes. out to be a timeout corner uh, and it wasn't used appropriately. And of course, you know, in, in the issue that we uh, live with, with restrained seclusion, we often find really um, interesting names for seclusion rooms, you know, rooms that kids are put in as a, you know, maybe it's crisis management, maybe it's punishment, but they might be called the quiet room or the cool down room or the blue room. Uh, but the truth <laughs> is they're, they're rooms that kids are put in against their will. Um, so, you know, that's something I guess we have to watch for is where people take a good idea. And then, you know, have you uh, seen that happen? I have heard of it happening. It's so vitally important that if you're going to introduce something like a calm corner, that the person who is going to be using it be trained on what it is 
and how to introduce it. You can't just put a calm corner in the classroom either because regardless of whether you intend it to be, the kids who are used to that type of instruction, who are used to seclusion and who are used to isolation as a punishment, will see that as a timeout corner and as a stigma to be sent there unless you set the groundwork from the very beginning and teach them otherwise. What I actually did when I introduced my calm corner, remember I set the groundwork prior to um, introducing my groundwork. I'm sorry, I just, I wanna respond to something that just said in, in um, chat here that it's traumatic for the child as they're forced to regulate on their own. Absolutely not what is supposed to happen um, and not how the calm corner is intended to be used. What I did um, prior to introducing my calm corner is first I laid the groundwork and I trained the kids and I, I encouraged the kids to explore for themselves um, different methods of self-regulation and self-awareness that they might have not already have been aware of. I did a lot of mindfulness. Mindfulness is not a magic bullet and I don't want to push mindfulness as being amazing for everybody because it isn't. It's just one more tool to have in your toolbox. But we did a lot of, we read books by Gabby Garcia, um, listening with my heart, listening to my body about identifying how you're feeling, um, identifying your emotions, learning how you can change your emotions or how you can regulate or makes you feel better when you're feeling a certain emotion. Um, we did that for a year before I had a calm corner. Um, once I introduced the calm corner, um, I told the kids, and I really, I didn't introduce it actually at the beginning of the year because I needed time to gather the materials. Um, so it came in about a month into the year and the kids knew it was coming. And we had talked about the calm corner, what it was going to be, how we were going to use the fact that everybody has the choice to go there anytime they want. You don't have to ask permission. You can just go on in. I can suggest that you go if I see that you're having a hard time, but you never have to go. Um, and they were really excited for the calm corner to come. And then the week that I did introduce the calm corner, um, they all fought over who got to go in there first. And we, I had, to, I had a rule that, you know, okay, we know we're going to, we're going to make a sign up sheet and I'm just going to call your names and each of you can go have, you know, three minutes in the calm corner because otherwise they were queuing up at the calm corner. <laughs> so during independent work time that day, um, I would just call them one at a time. Okay, it's your turn in the calm corner. Go ahead. It's your turn. You can go try the calm corner now if you want to. And they just got to go in there and explore all of the materials were in there and familiarize themselves with it. Um, and then after that week, you know, I, they knew it was always there. It was always available and nobody ever has to use it. It is never used as a timeout corner. If there were ever a situation where um, a child was so upset or a situation had escalated so much that child needed to be removed entirely, I would walk that child out of the classroom. I would not send that child to the calm corner. I would take that child out into the hallway so that I could talk to that child and so that I could, you know, we could work through that situation without an audience. The calm corner is never used um, as a punishment. It's, ne it's always a choice. And nobody, and it's, we recognize that it doesn't work for everybody. In fact, one of my students said to me the other day, Mrs. Blaise, do we even really need, still need the calm corner? Because, you know, we'd have so much more space if we didn't have a calm corner. <laughs> and three students jumped in and said, yeah, but this student loves the calm corner and I like to use the calm corner. And, you know, it's like, just because you're not using it and it's not for you doesn't mean that it, there isn't a benefit to it being available. It, you know, it struck me before when you were talking that the way you're teaching um, is very, um, it facilitates cooperation and collaboration among the students and really caring for each other, which is one of the things that uh, is a little harder to do when you have uh, competition, when you have programs that are rewards and uh, consequences and award systems and all that kind of stuff. But the very way 
so many of the, the things that you have talked about really are kind of, we're all in this together. We're going to look out for each other. We're mm. going to make sure that each of us gets our needs met without saying those actual words. That's what you're living. That's what you're. I also model it yeah. a lot. Um, you know, I, I do not make it a secret to my students that I am neurodivergent. I don't make it a secret to my students um, that I have migraine headaches. I don't make it a secret to my students uh, that I'm misophonic. I use the calm corner. I will sometimes stop yeah. in the middle of a lesson and say, you know what, Mrs. Blacher needs a break and I will go to the calm corner for three minutes and come back out. <laughs> 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 uh, That's ev cool. Everybody. <laughs> everybody is, is entitled to the same accommodations and there is nothing that I allow myself to have that they're not allowed to ask for. You know, I have my earplugs, so I have a jug of earplugs and they can all try the earplugs. You know, I have, the, I use the calm corner. Um, sometimes I need to have a cup of tea at my desk because, you know, caffeine helps my migraines. So they're allowed to have food or drink at their desks if they feel that, you know, they're they're low or whatever. You know, it's, I, I everything that they do, I do also. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I love that you're very, you're very thoughtful about, you know, this calm corner. This is something that's positive. It's something there to help and support. Um, you know, you, you, I wouldn't send a kid there if they, they were having a hard time. Uh, you know, one of the things that's always amazed me about the use of seclusion is that I, I've heard people tell me, well, gee, um, you know, this is our seclusion room, and of course, seclusion is involuntarily putting a kid in a room and shutting the door. Um, and, and then they'll say, well, sometimes kids choose to go to that room. And, and I can't imagine a scenario where you've seen people forcibly drugged to a seclusion room that you would think, gee, that looks like a nice place for me to go. <laughs> um, but, you know, people people will say that. Oh, well, they, they choose to go there. Um, having, you know, I, and I think it's really important to distinguish those things. Having things for, you know, a self-directed break if they need it is fine. But, uh, you know, separating out, you know, something and, and keeping it positive, I think is really important. Absolutely. Uh, let's see if we have any other questions here. Um, okay, so, so somebody, okay, uh, Calm Corner, okay. Um, okay. Um, uh, Kath has said something that I think is, um, I just, I'm, I'm wondering what your take on is, Karen. and I, I have strong feelings about this. Um, she says that they now say at public schools that they don't actually ever punish a child, but they use timeouts and seclusion and removal from the class and they send kids to right. the principal's office. So I'm not sure what they mean by don't ever punish. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's just, that's straight up behaviorism. That's, well, we can't reward that with attention. And right. a timeout yeah. is a timeout from attention. <laughs> and yeah. Um, and also, you know, I, I do feel for the teachers um, having been in that situation too, when you have a large class and you have a child who um, for whatever reason is dysregulated, is disruptive, is, is demanding all of your attention. You need that child not to be in that situation in order for you to do your job. And you, our training is remove the child from the classroom, send the child to the office, send the child someplace else, put the child in timeout, put the, send the child to the counselor, you know, just foist it off on somebody else. And then the child isn't getting rewarded with attention and you can still do your job. Yay, everybody wins. And of course, everybody doesn't win. Right. Um, when we create a more inclusive classroom environment, what you find, you know, once you get away from, from those entrenched expectations and, and that behaviorist training is that those situations happen less frequently to begin with. There is less of a problem to address, which is not to say that nobody has problems. People have problems. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Are, are you by any chance familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Lori Desitels? I am not. Okay, so uh, she is a former special education teacher, professor at Butler University, teaches a program on applied educational neuroscience. And, and what struck me about it is, as I listen to you, a, a lot of what she teaches in this, um, this realm of applied educational neuroscience is really helping teachers as well as students to understand their own brain and their own brain state. And she does a lot of activities around helping to regulate and understanding. I just thought about your vocabulary earlier and how you were kind of connecting the kids to the way that they feel. And that's so important. I mean, I think sometimes we seem as adults very judgmental about feelings that kids have and we're, we're not interested. So anyway, I was just kind of curious uh, that that may be another area that, that interests you in terms of uh, all the research you're doing, that area of educational neuroscience. Uh, in fact, if, if you have any interest, we can connect you. But she had a great book uh, called Connection Over Compliance. And and, and I love the I title right away. Okay, great. <laughs> I heard great. of the book. Get yourself a copy and read it. But Connection <laughs> Over Compliance is, is, is very much about that. You know, you, you've talked about behaviorism and the, the rewards and punishment, um, but but how powerful human connection is in motivating people. And somebody had a question. And I think it actually goes to this point really well. Let me see if I can find it here. It was our friend Megan again. Yeah, and Megan yes. said, yeah. Uh, have you found any go-to alternatives for moving, uh, for motivating when removing rewards and punishments? That has been challenging. I have tried things. I don't necessarily recommend the things that I have done. I will tell you what's working and what's not. Um, I'm in a weird position where I have the same group of students this year that I had last year. But mm -hmm. last year, um, I hadn't begun to change my pedagogy and hadn't really begun to, to integrate these inclusion strategies into my classroom. So I had a token economy. I had two token economies. Um, I had pom-poms, we called them warm fuzzies, that they, they earned for, um, you know, catch the mean kind, that sort of thing. You know, so they get pom-poms and we filled up the jar, we'd have a party. They love that and they didn't want me to get rid of that. They were very upset when I told them we weren't gonna have a pom-pom jar this year. So we still have a pom-pom jar, but it's really kind of a decorative pom-pom jar. And I just toss pom-poms in it every day so we can have periodic parties because I don't wanna <laughs> use a behavior system. Um, and the other system that I had, um, which I kind of repurposed, which is sort of working, is I had a system that used to be a behavior management system called Blacher Bucks, because when you have a last name that starts with B, <laughs> Why wouldn't you have Blacher Bucks? Um, Blacher Bucks used to be awarded for participation. You know, if, if I was teaching a lesson and I felt that I was kind of using them, um, uh, losing the, their interest, and I wanted them to start participating and again and say, who can give me the answer for a Blacher Buck? And then all of a sudden every hand shoots up. And, you know, they'd save up Blacher Bucks and they could buy prizes at the end of the week. I completely revamped that system, but I did keep the Glacier Bucks because my reasoning was um, that if a kid isn't intrinsically motivated by, we don't really, we don't have grades at this level. You know, I'm teaching third and fourth. We don't have A, B, C, D, and I don't want them to be motivated by their score on a test anyway, because that's so, that's not a measure of, of ability. I, I grade everything on a mastery system and I need them to know that an 80 is just as good as a hundred. Um, but they needed, I wanted them to have kind of a tangible way to keep track of their own progress and, and to keep kind of um, keep tabs on their own productivity and to make choices between productivity or taking a break during that unstructured time. So now what I actually do is they, they get paid just for doing, completing their assignments. They get Blacher Bucks um, during independent work time 
Um, you know, remember I said I have a certain minimum number of assignments you need to accomplish, you need to complete during independent work time. For every assignment that you complete over the minimum, you get a Blatcher Bucks. So if you turned in extra assignments that day, you can earn Blatcher Bucks towards prizes in the prize box. And what that's doing is it's presenting them with a choice. I can choose, you know, now that I've done what I needed to accomplish, I can now choose to take a break and to play with slime at my desk or to play checkers with my friend, or I can choose to do some more practice and to, to keep honing my skills and to do some more work. Um, so I can either, I can have something I want now or I can have something I want later. And neither one of those is preferable to the other. It's, well, what do I want right now? What do I need right now? What's the best use of my time? So I was kind of, my reasoning on the Blade Box was, well, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of practice that adult life skill of budgeting your time and budgeting your mental and emotional energy and figuring out what you need um, in any given moment. Um, and it has worked in that it is incredibly motivating. Um, it has not worked in that I'm really bad at math and they earn way more Blatcher Bucks than I ever expected them to. And my all of my salary goes to my prize box. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm still, I, I wouldn't necessarily push that as um, a system. I still feel like maybe I've got some internalized behaviorism going on in there. I'm, I'm still kind of learning what works and what doesn't. But it was more, they were really upset that I was taking away Blatcher Bucks, so I had to come up with something to do with them. So the, the one question I would have about that is that when, when we see kids who are um, overloaded with stress or um, neurodivergent kids or kids with um, uh, other kinds of challenges, sometimes they're not able to, they don't have the capacity to earn. It, um, so have you found that that's ever an issue with your Blatcher Bucks? It's not an issue on the scale that I am using it on. Okay. Um, because you know, remember, I was working with a group of kids who had already known for a year. Um, you know, I, I have a pretty good sense of what they are and are not capable of, and I'm not presenting anybody with an unattainable goal. Um, of course, on a larger scale, that's a very difficult thing to assess. And you can't take for granted that any given goal is attainable. Um, just actually coming back to Megan's question about alternatives for motivating, ideally, um, you want the kids to find intrinsic motivation and we kind of take for granted the kids don't have intrinsic motivation to learn school's stupid. You know, they don't, they don't have, they lack the degree of abstraction to understand why learning long division now is going to serve them as adults. It's, it's, it may not. You know, Right. And if, you ask them, yeah. and if you ask them why is school important, you know, they will regurgitate what their parents have told you. Oh, well, because I need to get a job as a grown up because I needed to get into a good college or but they don't they don't care. At this age, they, they don't they don't have that intrinsic motivation, but they do have intrinsic motivation. Um, so helping them find that and having a conversation in which they set their own goals is tremendously helpful and also making their progress visible to them is extremely helpful. You know, with the Blacher Bucks, they have a physical count of how many assignments they've completed, which is really what they like about it. You know, it's like, oh, I had a really good day today. Look how many Blacher Bucks I earned. I feel good about myself. Um, and they don't feel bad about themselves if they earn fewer because they chose to earn fewer. They, I decided I didn't want to go today. I'm really fine with just one. I didn't want to buy anything this week anyway. Um, but you know, I talked about those those student teacher conferences that I had the very first question I asked every one of them is if I told your mom or dad that you're doing great, what does that mean to you? What does doing great look like? You know, does it mean that you're getting high scores on your tests? 
Does it mean that you're not getting in trouble? You know, does it mean that you're making friends, that you're helping people? Does it mean that you're excited to come to school? What does it mean for you? And we really, we dug, I dug into that with each of them. And I kind of got to the thing that each of them really wants to achieve for themselves and said, okay, do you feel like you're getting there? You know, and well, yeah, I'm really good at this. I'm kind of struggling with that. Okay, what can you do when you're struggling with this? It's going to make it easier for you. Or what do you need from me that's going to help you reach this goal? So when the students are setting the goals and constantly checking in with themselves and assessing their progress toward the goals and assessing for themselves whether or not the goal is attainable and articulating is it's not. I really want to do this, but it's just not possible. Okay, what is possible? How can we make it possible? What would make it possible? You know, and, and constantly keeping that conversation open kind of eliminates the need for providing an extrinsic motivation like a sticker chart yeah. or bleacher box or pom-poms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love what you say about that. And, and you know, the, the words of Alfie Khan uh, kind of resonate in my head that, you know, that, that rewards are good for one thing and that's short-term compliance. So if you're, mm -hmm. if you're trying to get short-term compliance then a reward might help, but if you're really trying to help a child to learn the skills or develop the ability to do something, that's not, not the key. But I would say that there are things that you are doing that probably, and, and alternatives is a strange word because I don't know that there are direct alternatives, but I think one of the biggest things that you're doing is you're building relationships with children. You are treating them as individuals, as people, rather than as, as children to be controlled. You are giving them a voice. You are giving them choice. And, and I would say that, you know, if we want to look at what you're doing to motivate people, you know, we all uh, you know, and I'm thinking about Lori's book here, but we, we and, and others have said this as well, but we do best, uh, we do our best work for the people we like. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when you're building those solid relationships, I think those relationships are really the key to move beyond rewards and, and, and punishment. How do you, how do you help them? Because intrinsic motivation feels really good when you do things because you're getting the reward out of it. Um, so, you know, I, I would say that much of your work is really focused on that, isn't it? It's, it's about the relationships, giving them voices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I actually, I want to address one of the questions that I see sure. popping up here on the sure. side, if I may, um, from Brittany about, uh, yes, uh, specific recommendation for accommodating younger students' needs within a classroom. When you're talking about preschoolers, I have a lot of experience with this as well. I, in, in those years where I wasn't teaching, um, I was providing daycare for my sister's two kids. So I had five in my house, three under three. <laughs> I potty trained three at the same time. I, and they are a neurodiverse bunch. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I have experience with this. Um, I'm trying to think of, of, I'm trying to organize my thoughts on this. At that age, they're not going to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you necessarily about um, what they want or what they need or how they think they're doing, but they know how they feel. Feel. They know what they like and what they don't like. Um, and they can express that to you, even if they can't express it verbally, you can, you can intuit it from behavior as communication. You can tell when a child is distressed or when a child is regulated or when a child is bored. Um, so again, you want to, you want to be constantly presenting these kids with options. There is no task that you have to complete in order to get through your day. There is no situation that you're in that you have to succeed at in order to get to the next situation. There's always an out. There's always a choice. There's always 
um, a way that you can cope, that you can regulate, or that you can switch to something else in order to get you through that moment. Uh, there's another question that just popped up here, and I, I haven't read the whole thing. It's it's a long <laughs> one, but uh, Brooke says that I often feel no one considers my son in a lot of the decisions. They try group plans and such, asking what he thinks um, uh, a good, proud day is uh, a question. I'm going to bring this up to his teachers as he finally is trying to ease back into in-person school. Um so you know, you know, this is really getting at the fact that nobody's nobody's listening, listening or asking. Uh, I think it's key to get someone getting to know them. Uh, it's hard to go back uh, to sympathy for teachers. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, it's a complicated problem. But you know, how do we how do we get um, you know how do how do we make that shift of people really listening to our kids? I mean, you know, um, you have uh, children as well um, that you know are are they in the public school? They are. Um, okay. They are all in the and all in different situations. My 15 year old okay. is full remote by choice. Um, my 12 year old is um, was hybrid up until um, last week. They just went back to full in person. And my youngest one, because he is in um, a special program, he's in a 613. Um, he's been full in person all year. I have been coping with school avoidance with two out of my three kids. Mm -hmm. um, like recently, we are still kind of in crisis. Um, and something that I very much learned with my youngest, who has, is the, the most avoidant one right now, he, he, he's missed 40 days of school so far this year. Mm -hmm. um, because I just can't, if he physically resists, I'm not gonna physically force him to go. So I, I have a limited number of, of options. Um, and something that I learned that I really needed to converse with him is he was coming home from school every day and saying, mommy, I had a great day. And his teacher was emailing me and saying, he had a great day. And then the next day he didn't wanna to go to school. So one day I kind of stopped and I said, honey, when you tell me you had a great day, do you mean that you were happy? And he's like, no, I hated it. <laughs> it's like, I mean that everybody told me I did a good job. You know, I mean that I got the token on my token board. I mean that, you know, that everybody told me I had a great day. So I had a great day, mommy. And well, that's, is nobody asking you? <laughs> yeah. And, and so my, my advice to, to that parent who said, and you're right, you know, special ed teachers are absolutely overstretched. And I don't think I could do what I do in a public school setting, especially not, you know, with, with my own executive function issues. And I have tremendous respect for public school teachers, uh, which is why I still think it's, it's so funny that I wound up being the person everybody's coming to to talk to about this, because I'm not sure I could do it. <laughs> um, but teachers, don't necessarily listen or touch base with their students. Or even if they want to, they don't necessarily have the capacity to. But do you know who teachers do always find the time to communicate with and always listen to and will always interact with? It's in our training, it's in our blood, is the parents. Mm -hmm. So as a parent, you can do that piece. You know, if the teacher isn't touching base or isn't including your child in decisions, then instead of contacting the teacher to tell them what you think they should do, you contact the teacher to tell them what your kid has told you they think they should do or what your kid has told you they need. You can become their voice and their advocate because pe people do approach adults and approach parents much more as partners in the educational process. And that is an easier shift than trying to convince them to see the child as a partner in the educational process and as somebody who knows what's best for them. You know, so they're less likely to dictate that to the parent. You can kind of be your child's mouthpiece if you need to.
you you said something in the very beginning that is like coming full circle to me, and that is about um, asking, uh, asking what you need, asking for help, asking for accommodations. And it strikes me and, and people who are out there doing this every day can tell me if I'm wrong or on, on base. It strikes me that in our public schools, there are so many spoken expectations as well as unspoken expectations. And, and I know as a parent, one of the things that was hardest for me was I had a lot of unspoken expectations that I treated as though they were real and they were not necessarily, but they were in my head that all parents are supposed to do this, they're supposed to do that. I think teachers have had every year something more layered on to them. And so it's, it's become very difficult. The other piece of it is, is that parents and teachers get this idea that we're supposed to fix everything. And the way you get the most done is when you listen and not go in there thinking you already know the answer. And you have given us, the other thing I wanted to say, okay, I'm like doing my three wrap up question. The other thing I wanted to say was, um, now it's gone because I'm too old. Um, <laughs> um, you give people a chance to, um, to figure out what they need. And, and people, you get the answer, you solve the, the kid's problem by listening. You, I mean, you don't solve, we're not in the business of solving problems, but what ends up happening is that through listening, you find out what the real thing is. And often the kids can solve their own problems and mm -hmm. they just be heard for it. But we're so mindset of things are supposed to, oh, I know what I was going to say, came back, um, was you're like, even though you have a very unique unique situation with a small class size and you don't have a principal breathing down your back to get these test scores in, um, what you are doing is you are demonstrating, you are like a, uh, what are those things called, a, uh, you do a study first before you we're, we're a focus group. We're, we're a beta test. Yes, yes. <laughs> we're a test tank. Yes. So then you have found out all these great things that can work and those things, then we, we, they can be expanded. Um, so anyway, thank you. Of course. So I want to ask you, you know, we're getting to just about the end here. And if there's any other questions in the uh, audience, feel free to put them in the chat. But uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is kind of about your take home message. You know, I know that a lot of a lot of what you brought into the classroom is what you learned through your own experiences, you know, not not only as a teacher, but as a parent and, and what you learn. And, and, and I can relate to the journeys that we have in terms of, of my own personal journey. And I think about the things that I learned along the way. And, and what a difference some of those things made in, in being more successful. So as you reflect on that and, and knowing that we've got a lot of we've got a lot of parents in our audience as well as as teachers, um, what would be you know, what would be your take home message to parents and teachers about what you've learned on your journey uh, and what they might want to uh, think about moving forward? Oh, goodness. Um, take less for granted. Take nothing for granted you know, normalize having the conversation um, with all people, not just with people who have been identified as neurodivergent or as having a, a, a disability, but normalize just assuming that every single person you meet experiences life in a different way than you do, you know, and you really, and recognize those internalized expectations. 
Um, you know, recognize that listening does not look the same for everybody. Attention doesn't look the same for everybody. Learning doesn't look the same for everybody. Um, and let the people you encounter be your guide. And you can also model that, you know, you, you can um, front load expectations in your own interactions with people. I don't expect people to, to um, understand me right away either. And I tend to front load expectations. Like when I meet people, I will tell them things like, by the way, I'm really bad at returning phone calls and I will probably never send you a birthday card. Please know it's not personal because that's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, hi, I'm Karen. I'm never going to call you. <laughs> and right there. Yeah, you know, without having to disclose my diagnosis, without having to say I'm ADHD and I can't. This, no, this is who I am. This is how I communicate, and this is what you can expect from me. And this is what it means when I do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that smooths the way for all of my future communications with that person. Um, normalize doing that for everybody. It's okay to say I have trouble with this without having to explain why I have trouble and nobody else has trouble. Um, or I really like this without having to explain why I like it when nobody else likes it. Um, yeah, normalizing that conversation and involving everybody and taking nothing for granted lets you create an environment where nobody needs, well, I'm not gonna say where nobody needs accommodations. There's always gonna be somebody who needs accommodations, but where fewer people need accommodations because the environment itself isn't systemically disabling anybody. It's such an important, such an important concept and such an, I mean, how much better off we can all be if we can figure that out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I thought about the, the, the question about how do you take this um, because your situation is so different, but there are so many concepts that you do not have to have the same classroom that you have, but everybody can listen to the kids. Mm -hmm. Everybody can give voices and choices, uh, voice and choices. Um, there are so many. <laughs> There's so it's catchy many. because it rhymes, but it's hard to right. say. <laughs> uh, uh, um, everybody can <laughs> concepts about, and I think back to what uh, Brooke said about the child not being considered. And I think that's really kind of what often happens is that the child is, the adults know what to do. So the child's voice doesn't get heard. We can all do better with that. Um, so I, I, I'm grateful for what you've shared with us today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. This has been great. And I'm actually getting the uh, link to the uh, the full length article uh, on Voices and Choices. I'm going to put that in the uh, chat here if anybody's interested, if they haven't seen that already. But it really is a fantastic article. And as you were as you were thinking about kind of the, um, you know, the take home message, you hit a couple of the other points that I'd taken notes on here. <laughs> One of the things that you said was about how attention and learning doesn't look the same uh, way with everyone. But, you know, th there's so many of these perceptions. I mean, I think about uh, it, it was in my son's IEP. My son is autistic and in his IEP for years was about uh, making eye contact and looking forward. And of course, not only is that uncomfortable for him and, and something that uh, it can be difficult, it's not necessary. I mean, my son has the capability of listening to the four conversations in the room uh, at once, and uh, it may not look like he's, he's uh, paying attention, but it looks different. You know, we, we have our differences and our differences provide us a lot of strength as well. Uh, and I love that your approach is very mindful of the, the strengths that, that individuals have and the differences that individuals have. So want to thank you. This, this has been really a lot of fun. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that request that Megan made about, you know, presenting to uh, schools and others, you know, if you, if you pull together a presentation and would like to share it here on this platform, we, we'd be happy to do it. Um, but, you know, th there certainly is an opportunity to share what we know 
uh, you know, when, when, you know, you come up with, with things that are working better. Um, so, you know, again, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, and I want to thank everybody that's watching as well, but, uh, on that note, I'll let you go. And I've got a couple announcements for everybody else, but thank you. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. I, I'm not looking forward to my birthday card or any of that. <laughs> I'm right there with you on that. Um, and, and join us on, on the Facebook page, uh, cause people write questions in there and that'd be great if, if you, if you have time, I don't know how you have time with three kids in your class, but if you ever do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I will. And thank you guys so much for this opportunity to connect. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Karen. And, and I'm going to make a couple announcements. Thank you, Beth, as well. Uh, so just as an announcement, we have, of course, another program coming up in another two weeks. And again, we're going to be talking with another teacher. So this is a really great opportunity, uh, whether you're a parent or whether you're a teacher, you're, you're someone else. Uh, part of the reason we do these is that we want to provide information that is worthy to be shared. So if you're a parent, maybe these are things that you want to share with your teachers. If you're a teacher, these might be things worth sharing with your parents. Uh, so at any rate, next time we're going to have Lori Kirkland. Lori is a third grade teacher in Indianapolis. And Lori has been working with uh, Dr. Lori DeSatels, uh through the Educational Neuroscience uh, Program and is going to be talking about how she applies uh, applied educational neuroscience in the classroom. So this should be really interesting. Uh, if you've not seen uh, Dr. DeSatel's book, uh, Connections Over Compliance, it's a great read and, and gives you a lot of background on what we'll be talking about next time. So that is it for today. Uh, really enjoyed having the opportunity to have everybody join us again. Uh, please uh, tune in again in two weeks and we will see you then. So thank you and uh, have a good day, evening, morning, whatever it may be. <laughs>